Welcome to this mini-series of Data for What, the Development Gateway podcast. Over the course of four episodes, we will explore open data, data governance, and privacy, as well as the many challenges and opportunities within these topics. I'm your host, Beverly Hatrimbu. In this episode, myself and Sean will discuss a number of different key themes to give us a framing discussion for talking about data governance. First of all, what do we mean? What are the different models for data governance? We'll talk a little bit about structural agency justice, which is really about people participating in formation of systems. We'll talk a little bit about how data trusts are a tool for people building the systems to create a fair and equitable system that protects people's rights. We'll also use these general themes to talk about accountability discussing structural issues about who owns what, who is responsible, and how actors along the data supply chain are responsible for safeguarding rights. But let's skip right to the episode. Today's guest, Sean McDonald, comes from a background of having co-founded Frontline SMS, which built digital systems in complex environments. He's the founder of Digital Public, which has all around um, sort of designing and building data governance and public interest institutions. He's also a prolific researcher and writer focused mostly on data, law, and governance issues in practice. So, Sean, how did you come to working on these intersection of issues? First, thank you. And what a pleasure to be part of this launching effort. I've been a longtime fan of DG's work, and it's really great to have you specifically and, and the team more broadly exploring these issues. I got basically started, I thought I was going to go into international development and help build out legal systems. And in 2008, lawyers are sort of famous for lamenting the financial collapse, but I may be the one person whose life was dramatically changed by a World Bank PDF, which was the Making the Law Work for Everyone report, which basically said that law didn't really reach about 60% of the world, which, you know, I had just spent three years on a system that I believed was important for equity, recognizing that it wouldn't have achieved a failing grade on a test. So I, I took a structural approach and started started thinking, okay, obviously at that level of failure, you're not talking about a small change, you're talking about a structural design problem. And so started looking at and thinking about legal systems as design systems, and then basically figured that the next thing that you would do if you were designing for equity would be to focus on the platform that was adopted by and reached the most people, which at the time and still is SMS. And so my design approach was always, how do we build right-seeking tools from what is already used? And so that's what brought me to Frontline. And what I essentially found is that trying to build a tech company, particularly a public interest, social impact tech company was really ambiguous. There aren't clear guidelines in a lot of places. The law wasn't, I mean, the law still isn't really there in a way that makes it easy to know what is and is not safe to do, even with the best of intentions in a lot of cases. So the lawyer in me at that point, as you can imagine, started freaking out and I was going along and then Basically, someone started using Frontline SMS's research and work as an example of why they, as a sort of graduate student, should be able to use back-end call detail records during the Ebola outbreak. And if there was a sort of face-first point of inflection for me, I, I took that really seriously and ended up getting a, a research grant and writing a paper about whether or not it was legal and whether or not it was effective. And what that really ended up showing me was is how little guardrails there are in the pipeline between someone has an idea that sounds like it's a good thing and is well-intentioned and getting deployed into a real world environment without any of the sort of 
diligence or testing that you would hope for, for something of that sensitivity and scale. And so I've essentially done an enormous amount of research and then work trying to help organizations figure out what it means to do whatever they're trying to accomplish ethically and responsibly with data governance. But really, it's been a process of falling through Windows face first and then trying to help other people do that slightly less painfully. What does a more robust global data governance regime look like to you? What are some of the key features we need to be thinking about from the national to the individual level to make a system of responsible data management that works for everyone? Good governance, just like you said, you know, it's, it's a really complex set of questions. But my own research ended up looking for what are the common aspects of good governance. And I ended up sort of nerdily going through lots of different models and personally arriving at something along the lines of sort of structural agency justice. I mean, that's a horrible term and it's certainly not something anyone would want to say. Really, really easy. I just sort of made it up here, so probably should never use it again. But the <laughs> the idea being that uh, Eleanor Ostrom won a Nobel Prize in 2009 for doing some of the world's first empirical research on commons governance, commons resource mm. governance. Mm. And she's one of the most incredible writers and and researchers and thinkers on this topic. Unfortunately, she's passed, but her work has been sort of distilled to these eight rules, which are about the way that communities interact to do that governance. And they're a lot about essentially people being able to participate in the formation and adaptation of systems that affect their rights. And I think at a really basic level, whether you think about formal legal traditions and equity or more casual ones. It's it's really about mm-hmm. building integrity in systems and integrity in the sense of like, I am able to do a certain amount of work to say that the rights that I, I say I'm gonna protect, I can do that and do. Uh, and then also to be held accountable to that. And so being able to be brought into constructive enforcement inquiry. And I think that what we've seen is that there's a lot of sort of top down, but not very much accountability. So when you say top down, you mean in terms of like how things are being enforced or how people are really engaging with the system of being able to control their own information? Both. I think that the the former one, you know, there's been a lot of recent coverage specifically because of the Facebook Oversight Board mm-hmm. and its first round of, of decisions. But no matter the platform you're talking about, there are a lot of discussions about essentially they get to decide the rules, they get to decide how they enforce those rules mm-hmm. and with what degree of clarity and adherence, that's not to say these things are not complex. They're very complex. And that's part of the problem of, of that degree of centralization is that mm-hmm. you know you have one group of people trying to make rules for for everybody. Two billion others. And it's 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 full of errors. So I love this concept of sort of structural justice. When we were prepping for this episode, you talked about how we need to be thinking about data rights in terms of what is an existing topic for other people, especially in the human rights space, which is around access to justice. So could you talk a bit more about how you see that access piece framing um, some of these solutions for a more functional data governance system? Frank Pasquale is actually the person who kind of put me on most to this thinking, but when you think about the design, particularly of American democratic governance, but in the way that democratic constitutions sort of echo in, in many parts of the world, participating in court, participating in justice, is it's a system duty. 
It's like citizenship. It's like voting. So it's it's meant to be an inclusive process. It's meant to be something that is not so formal or expensive or scary or asymmetrical that no sane person would ever involve themselves in the process. And the reason it's designed that way is because courts are designed to adapt law. So mm-hmm. where where a rule works in one place but doesn't work in another place, the difference in court jurisdiction and decision is supposed to help us interpret that in an appropriate way for the context. And what happens when people are no longer able to really meaningfully go and bring cases? And just a quick baseline here, the World Justice Report is a global resource that empirically analyzes access to justice issues across the world. They've noticed a sort of steady decline, specifically in the last three years, in the areas of law that you would want for data governance to be effective. So effective corporate and commercial kind of engagement from the public sector, private rights of action, you know, human rights enforcement have all been on the decline for, for a number of years. Freedom House has recently reported its index and has basically said that the state of, of governance and democracy has been in decline for I believe 15 years consecutively and by the largest margin in this past report during that 15 year period. All of which is to say, I think these two things together are not a coincidence that this aspect of our ability to help interpret rules to be appropriate for our context has been severed. And that happened long before technology. We just haven't been very dynamic in the way that we've designed justice systems. But it has also been significantly compounded by the complexity of tech, you know, the way it adds international jurisdictional issues, among many, many others. But until we are able to participate in the systems that define rules for us in really meaningful and effective ways, it's kind of hard to imagine anyone getting it right at the scale at which, you know, some of these, these tech interventions operate. One of the sort of ongoing vehicles that's being used to test this out is through data trusts. So I don't know if that's necessarily the the be all and end all in terms of increasing some of these, addressing some of these access issues that you're talking about. What are some practical ways for people who think, okay, yeah, we know that the world is going directions that we might not love. Um, So what does that mean for us? How can we sort of halt some of that decay on a practical level? A lot of what we're talking about is design, Mm. right? And and I think that sometimes we don't think about like, when is that moment at which I should be considering these issues? And what, how does that work and grow to scale? There's not a lot of really great law Mm. on data governance, as it turns out. And there's a lot of need and a lot of really important things that move through that ecosystem anyway. There is actually a type of law for exactly that situation. It's called equity. Now, equity isn't really about is there a, is this a violation of a pre-existing statute it much more broad brushstrokes here but approaches questions and disputes from the angle of mm. what seems fair given the context trusts started as and are largely a product of equity law it's historically almost always been about property but there is this giant grenade of definitional ambiguity in the way that law approaches this and we can we can kind of get into why and 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 all of that. But the the things that are really important is that trusts start creating relational duties. Now they're just the expectations that we have of people that we work with or do things with. So when you hire a lawyer, you expect them to represent your interests, even selflessly if necessary, in court. Same with a doctor, right? Those duties are fiduciary, even though the things that they're essentially brokering on your behalf, aren't really property. 
You could kind of, in some cases, you can make it about property, but trusts start from this idea that we need to be able to trust the people who are making decisions that affect our rights. And that in order to do that, in order to build some of that integrity, we've got to be working through systems of equity, systems of duty, where I, we can't wait in a lot of places for the legislature to pass a law and then someone else to in investigate it and then someone else to enforce it in some cases. And so a data trust is a legal tool for assigning the rights and duties that arise in the management of data. Data trusts are a kind of tool set that people who are building ecosystems or who want to be considering, who want to create duties and accountability, who want to create integrity, essentially, in the way that they represent someone else's interests or someone else's data rights. Data trusts are a really legally recognized tool that you can use to do that. In the little that I've dug into data trusts, I think that they sound like potentially really valuable vehicles when used well, but how do non-experts or sort of more regular people think about both engaging with data trust, setting them up? What is a basic way to approach it without having necessarily a legal background? There are really good questions about whether or not data trusts are good collective action vehicles. What we know for sure is that they are good at creating liabilities and responsibilities that increase the integrity of working ecosystems. And so for this stage of thinking about where is their use most valuable or most proven, it's creating independent oversight over critical functions in sensitive data ecosystems. One of my favorite examples of this, Johns Hopkins University is also a famous learning hospital. And as you can imagine, they generate extraordinarily valuable and important data through treatment. And they have an enormous body of very talented researchers to try and make you know, sense of it. But obviously there's a need for an intermediary because you don't just go to the hospital and then immediately sign yourself over to research. And so there's a Johns Hopkins data trust. And what they essentially do is a, a multi-step and multi-stakeholder analysis and sort of management of the integrity of the division between data from the hospital and data for research. And they do that by also using very high standards and clear legal liability to justify then the sharing that they do do, right? And so I think it's it's yeah. it's the easiest way to think about it is if you need to prove that you're good at something, independent oversight is not a bad way to do it. And independent oversight that takes legal responsibility for its impact is even better. And data trusts are a great way to do that. I think that's such a good point because I think increasingly some of this hand-wringing around data governance and data privacy issues like we have to keep reminding people we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of examples we can pull from the health space, from the education space, where they've been doing data sharing for years in order to do sort of produce the kinds of innovations that are that are valuable to the world. We don't have to start this over. We can look to those and see what can be adapted. I think that there's been a lot of time and energy and money sunk into the idea that we don't have those as a sort of mm -hmm. benefit to various actors, right? In fact, we have not only do we have protections from the sort of substantive areas or the, the industries that you're describing, we also have procedural protections, right? Human subjects research is not a new thing. We have managed the sort of pipeline from idea to use in ethical and mature fields in a broad range of contexts already. So there is, as you say, a huge amount to draw from. And we do ourselves a service as a data governance community when we do that. I think pretending that we're going to invent 
new relational liabilities. I think that pretending as though these are sort of blank slate problems is a net negative for everybody. What are some of the key items that you think are missing from the global data governance discussion that you think are critical for for our understanding and for helping us shape solutions? One of the ones that I find most interesting and really most bewildering is how little we treat what I what I think of as the kind of legal logic of representation into how we exchange data, right? And what I mean by this is if you talk about privacy law or data protection law, these are areas of law that are most triggered by when we exchange data. And the idea is that we can say this is or is not appropriate sharing of data based on the substance or the relationship. But what we're really doing is exchanging representations of fact. No one collects Excel sheets. They're not they're not Pokemon, right? Like I, I wish they were Pokemon. Do you? I would there'd be so many. <laughs> they're already such a mess. But you know, it would be a lot more fun. Did you play Pokemon? Did you play Pokemon yeah. Go, the phone game? The app thing? No, because when I heard that it was just exposing all kinds of information because people were just following your activities all over the world. I was like, yeah, no, I'm good. I don't need to play that game. <laughs> like, I think that that's the thing. That single consideration is mm. what I believe is the organizing moment for data governance. It's not atrocity. Unfortunately, we've seen atrocities be embedded and abetted by technology. It's it's this recognition that we have already put an enormous amount of, of dependence, of reliance on digital infrastructure and digital relationships. And we're now starting to see that basically every single touch point at least can be exploited to be the how much data can we get about you and who can we resell it to style of market. And that insecurity, that, that suspicion has leaked into video games and newspapers and banking interactions and health, you know, vaccinations now. The data politics of all of this are fundamentally undermining the legitimacy of the analog institutions. It's not just like, do we or do we not trust tech? It's because they're using tech this way, can we trust the public health system? And at that point, you know, I feel like that to me is is one of the reasons we're starting to see at least more serious attention being paid to how to form out some of these issues and some of these rules. There's so much emphasis on what private companies are doing, which is legitimate. But also the reality is when so many of your public services are now happening online, how are we holding governments accountable? How are we holding sort of the service providers who support government to put these things online accountable as well in terms of building in, this goes back to your point around design, like building in like feedback and participation opportunities for people who are engaging daily with these systems, that that piece of the conversation we don't hear about enough. And we need to, if we're going to acknowledge that like data and sort of digital digital governance is going to change every, like every aspect of how we engage. The structural dynamic too is like really worth mentioning, which is to say that mm. my, my work in this kind of vein started with Ebola and contact tracing. And basically like if you had been misprofiled, what could you do? You know, what if, yeah. if, if things were happening, you know, how are we how are we enabling people to interrogate whether or not these systems worked at all, let alone whether or not they were privacy protecting and secure and data protecting and what have you. And what that exploration really sort of chased down or more realistically found face first is that to your point about how do we check public systems, what does pass through liability look like? So for those not afflicted with a legal degree at home. <laughs> when a government hires a private company to do something, they sign a contract 
And that contract essentially says, this is what you're responsible for and this is what you're not responsible for. Generally speaking, public institutions have a higher responsibility. They have to you know, be able to prove that they're not being biased, for example, against a number of categories. That kind of responsibility doesn't always pass through that contract. So you might have a private company implementing a service on behalf of a public institution, but not necessarily to the same degree of responsibility or the same degree of due process. Or you know, They might not give you the same rights that you would otherwise have if the government was implementing the service directly. And so you bring it up and it's like that makes sort of obvious sense in the public to private divide. But even in the private to private divide, you know, very often it's I'm hosted over here. My data provider is this other organization over here. I'm using a third party AI service to do the processing of this data. And so all of a sudden, what was once, you know, I can go and file a complaint or raise an issue with one company. I'm now having to go find, you know, the entire component part. You're really looking at the whole supply chain now versus just one or two entry exactly. points in order to figure out who I, who you who you submit your complaint to. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's it's that that structural issue is another one of those things that I, that feels really missing from mm. the data governance debate because it's until we have until we're treating supply chains as supply chains as opposed to disconnected actors who use who all draw from the same openly licensed commons it'll be very difficult to ever hit a baseline or a reliable floor of care right we we can't if if you can just outsource your responsibilities away then what well, companies tend to a lot of people do too and so then it becomes this notion of how do you build duties or how do you build responsibility that creates integrity, that creates long-term value. If you're not participating in both sides, you know, being able to participate in the design and in the interpretation, you lose that investment in long-term integrity. And in my opinion, I think that's certainly one of the reasons that we see so many cracks in the foundation, essentially. Who are some of the, either the voices or some of the areas from outside sort of the traditional makers of data governance policy who we think who you think are going to be a big part of the discussion going forward as we try to move towards some kind of consensus? I think we're going to see people with rights get really tired of not having them respected. And I think that we're seeing it become possible enough to bring those rights holders together and really engage them. So you're seeing increases in class action lawsuits in data governance. And I think those are really important. Yep. We're seeing you know increased movements for people to talk about private rights of action. So even the most optimistic estimates of regulators are like maybe they see something like 2% of total cases and they adjudicate 2% of those or they investigate 2% of those. So if you think about how effective a regulator is ever likely to be compared to the total number of problems that, that could fall under their mandate, you know, it's not a complete solution. So that piece, sort of thinking about what are the more like structural and creative ways to politically engage people who have rights that are just either not being recognized or not being particularly well enforced. 
And then I think we're also going to see, and this is maybe the optimism in me shining through, but you know, a lot of the reason that I came to Frontline SMS was because of the access to justice problem and recognizing that there is a huge sort of communication and logistics layer of why legal systems only meet the needs of a really small minority of, of people totally. That layer of the work, we're going to see more and more creative mechanisms, I believe, and more dispute resolution design patterns and systems take over. Not everything should be a court case. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't regulate it at all. And so I think hopefully we're going to see more people get involved and we're also going to see more mechanisms get designed and rolled out to get people involved. And I think that those two sides are, are both really important and really positive ways in which digital governance advocacy is going to grow. We've woven through all of these different threads. And I, I guess I do like to be an optimist. I do like to end on an area of like, okay, if we have a starting point or a couple starting points, where do we start? So essentially, what do you see as the low hanging fruit um, for where some of this change can begin to happen sooner rather than later? A lot of the answer to that question kind of depends on what you're trying to solve for. Mm. So let me start with just saying what I'm trying to solve for. What I'm trying to solve for, what I what I hope my work contributes to is making the tools for higher integrity systems easier and more available. Low-hanging fruit is a really difficult one because it makes it sound like it's going to be easy. And I think that none of this is going to be particularly easy. What I often try and look for are places where the incentives are toward integrity. So in medicine, if the data is bad and the treatment doesn't work, it matters. There are a lot of places in a lot of digital markets where it's less important or it's less provable when something goes wrong, kind of like the predictions we were talking about. And so the places where there's a strong drive and a strong dependence on public trust and legitimacy, there's going to be a equally sort of increasing amount of pressure to be able to demonstrate things like the supply chains of data rights that accompany data or representations. I think we're going to see more and more professional ecosystems and capital ecosystems mm. drive to longer term investment because short-term investments are flaming out left and right. It's not to suggest they're not doing fine. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean that I think the market's going to correct itself. But what I mean is, is that where there are strong incentives and bases for rights, I think we're going to see not only action, but we're going to also see more opportunities for the creation of procedural rights. So essentially, the initial cases will make it easier for future cases and future cases will then breed even more change. And so I think we're starting to see some of the enforcement questions get settled. And I think that one thing that is really promising is that we are seeing, and this isn't specific to the Biden administration, but we're seeing the trajectory of the American government getting involved. And because mm -hmm. a lot of the actors and bad actors, or whatever you consider them actors, fall under U.S. jurisdiction, it's encouraging to see the momentum gather. I think that a lot of times what happens in data governance debates is that people have such a strong attachment or relationship to one issue or one theory of rights that we get locked into debates about whether or not it's a privacy issue or a human rights issue or a property law issue. And my perspective here is that right? there's not going to be one. In fact, data is as a dynamic that is happening across sector and then as a vertical itself is developing its own sort of professional treatment theories of rights and law. And so I think the one other really, really positive thing to look forward to is that 
I think we're past the idea that we're going to have one single theory of rights that are going to you know, perfectly manage the issues raised by digital transformation. I think that that gives way to a lot of really creative and interesting opportunities for people with rights to engage in, in this conversation and in this process. I think that's so fitting in the 21st century, because I think back to how we first started this conversation about is this the new you know, is this the international human rights consensus 2.0? And it's so appropriate because much of the criticism of the human rights system has been about the fact that there is one convention that is supposed to apply to a hundred and some countries and it doesn't work that well because it doesn't adjust for local context. So it's really, I think, a little bit, the nerd in me is very excited to see that we might actually have a chance to develop some frameworks that are really nuanced, acknowledging that the harms and the opportunities are not the same across the board and um, with how people engage with um with digital technology. What are you reading, watching, or listening to? So I'll give you two answers. There's the nerdy answer and the real answer. The nerdy answer is there's a book called The World of Trusts, which is, it's actually an output of an academic conference. And it's a series of essays by some of the most like interesting fiduciary scholars in the world talking about different international case studies and the sort of parallels and challenges of building fiduciary, legally accountable fiduciary duties at the international level. I, the thing is, I'm so deep into this particular lens that I end up seeing it in places where, you know, I shouldn't. So I have been an on and off comic book nerd my entire life. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the sort of modern generation of comic book writing is that it provides a number of examples of how do we govern or how do we deal with people who have exceptional power that they often don't understand, is controlled by someone who is flawed and has the potential to really impact or hurt lots of other people, whether they mean to or not. And it sounds like a really ridiculous thing, but there are a number of really thoughtful and sort of beautifully done takes about that question. And in a lot of ways, I see a lot of parallels essentially between how do we talk about the responsibilities of someone with exceptional power who essentially isn't regulated by the government or the police in any particular way? And how do we compare that to the moments or the ways that we think about people with growing amounts of wealth or growing amounts of digital power or centralization decision-making? Those connections, I think, are both a fun way to take a lighter approach to some of it and not always, like you say, make it completely about work. But also there are thousands of those stories. So you've got lots and lots of versions of where it goes right and wrong and what can and maybe does and doesn't work. And it's a really interesting philosophical way to go through it. And I will say I belatedly discovered Streams of Thought Volume 3 by Black Thought. And mm. um, and slightly late to Jay Z's 4:44, and have been enjoying both of those. <laughs> that is fantastic. It's a good point because you see these issues, and that's this actually I think goes back to your point earlier about almost domesticating these issues so that people can engage with them in their regular lives. Like we were talking about Pokemon Go, I think that the, to the extent that people begin to see these impacts and like begin to see these issues everywhere, we're more likely to get sustained engagement. And like, there's nothing like art and culture and cop copious Netflix streaming to help us like zero in on that. Um, I originally had something like a super like professional focused answer around like some of the stuff I've been reading over at CG. But actually, I'm I've become latently like a massive Star Trek fan. I had never watched Star Trek before the pandemic began, but it I like it gives me 
like, yes, it's like a great escape, but it's also, it answers, it asks so many questions, I think, about what collaboration looks like as we are trying to move into this new space, literally and figuratively, of how we use information to go places. And I love Star Trek for the way, like many of the different iterations of how they engage with these issues. I had this uh, property law professor who, she was a wonderful teacher. She would show us episodes of Star Trek in class. I mean, like whole episodes, you know, like the one with the trial about data in the next generation. Oh my gosh. I mean, exactly. You know, it's very. That was such a good episode. But I mean, this is, this is it. These are the questions, right? Like these issues of agency. And we were talking earlier, I mentioned that one of the things that happens to people who have rights is that they get convinced that those rights don't have any real place in their life and then they don't go and yeah. act on it. And these, you know, pop culture stories are an incredibly important part of this. Being able to see the dynamics and say, oh, I recognize that. And oh, that's happening here. Obviously that's wrong is an important part of the education piece of it. The greatest trick tech ever pulled was to convince people that their rights didn't mm. exist. And seeing cultural stories where the technology is not mystifying and right systems do exist and we see things like justice being attempted, no matter how fantastical, I think that that's really powerful. A number of really wonderful artists are working on more and more now is creating hopeful versions of those mm. stories. We saw so much of the sort of warning dystopian tale and then people like thinking those were good ideas and building it anyway, that finding the stories that are rich with, with humanity in the way with that human these things ingenuity. Go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is, that's mm -hmm. it. When you get excited about these issues, I think they're the top of mind, even when you're supposedly watching TV, even when you're, you know, working at your actual job. So I'm so glad you're, you're like the perfect candidate for this because I knew we, we would be able to just sort of vibe and chat about things. So thank you so much for making the time to do this. Oh, absolute pleasure. Special thanks to our guests and thanks to our producers behind the scenes, Lindsay Fincham, Annalisa Goodman, and Becca Warner. This episode was produced by Lindsay Fincham and edited by Annalisa Goodman. Our theme music was created by Mark Hatcher. Learn more about Development Gateway and IRX Venture on our website at developmentgateway.org or through our social media. <laughs>